Hi, Spark. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're working through the text of Ephesians, as we have been for the last few weeks. Today, we're in the second half of Ephesians 2. And as a quick reminder for anyone who needs it, this is a letter that was written within just a few decades of Jesus's life on earth. And it was circulated among churches in the Mediterranean who were grappling with the challenges of racial integration demanded by their encounter with Jesus's revolutionary love. And you may already be thinking, Omer, I spent my whole week thinking about coronavirus and it's bummed me out. And now you're saying I have to think about racism too? And uh, yes, and uh, I'm even gonna ask you to think about both as they relate to each other. But before you douse your computer screen in Lysol or whatever it is people are doing these days, I'm going to ask you to journey with me through this text so we can uncover why it's been so powerful in dismantling animosity between groups for centuries. So with that in mind, let's read through our text for today, starting in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 11, and reading to the end of the chapter. This is what Paul says, Therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become one holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by God's spirit. Based on this reading, you can tell upfront that yes, race is at the forefront of Paul's thinking here in, in terms of, of what the problem is for this community. But as we address this issue today, we should understand that race is the issue, but it's not the only issue here. And racism is not the only way that we express hostility towards each other. It's not the only way that we build up walls to keep each other out. And this perspective is highlighted very well across Paul's other letters. In uh, another letter that he wrote earlier in to the church in Galatia, in which he's dealing with a very similar problem, he says, quote, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but also, he says, there's neither slave nor free, no man and woman, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when Paul brings up Jew and Gentile animosity. You should also have in the back of your mind that Paul is also very concerned about systemic animosity that exists among any groups of people. It's always below the surface for him and it comes out at various times. And he sees Jesus as the one who's destroyed the alienation that cuts across all of these isms. 
Uh, in fact, gospel writers and other New Testament writers' own stories testify to the fact that the dynamics with different groups of people, Jew versus Gentile, slave versus free, uh, man versus woman, can often intersect with each other, right? The experience of a Gentile woman would be different in Paul's world or Jesus's world from that of a Jewish woman or a Jewish man or a Gentile man. Uh, this is what we call intersectionality, right? It's when you have multiple identities that intersect with each other and your experiences with prejudice can vary greatly based on the intersection of these identities. It's like how so many Americans are worse off because of this pandemic but Black people are especially worse off because of the racist systems that have plagued us since long before coronavirus did. And Paul is ultimately taking aim at all of these prejudices. So today, there are three things that I think we can learn from Paul about what it takes to build a temple. That's the language that Paul uses here, to build a temple, to make sacred space for all of us. In describing what it takes to build this sacred space, Paul uses several uh, analogies. He mixes metaphors. There's language about a temple, about family, about a household, and they all kind of serve the same purpose in highlighting what it means to be united in Jesus. So let's talk about the first thing that we learn about what it takes to build a temple, and that is building a temple actually takes tearing down. In order to build up a house or a family, you, you have to destroy the forces that are working against it. Two times in this text, Paul uses the word hostility to describe the state of being between Jews and Gentiles when Jesus hasn't been given space to build things up. Paul then says Jesus destroyed the barrier of hostility and put it to death. You can ask yourself what is at its root, uh, what at its root would be driving the hostility that Jews and Gentiles uh, find in each other, uh, even after encountering Jesus. And it's helpful to break this problem down to its very core. When we talk about racism, we're talking about the, that psychological phenomenon of looking out for your own kind, what we call tribalism. It's the idea that what matters most is you propagating your own kind, looking out for your own kin, devoting all of your resources to looking out for yourself and your own, even if it comes at the cost of those who aren't your own. One of the most challenging aspects of the way of Jesus is how good Jesus is at exposing how deep-seated our tribalism is. In fact, some scholars will point out that perhaps the most countercultural thread of Jesus's teachings was his talk around tearing down families, which may sound very bizarre in general, but perhaps particularly bizarre right now, where we're in the middle of a pandemic and many people are more focused than ever on staying connected with their families and doing everything they can to look out for them, often at the cost of other people, for example, hoarding. And family runs deep. Uh, it's something that's universally felt, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. You get the idea that in our culture, that perhaps the, the greatest allegiance you will ever have to anyone is your family. It's expressed in dramatic ways in our shows and movies, from Don Corleone warning never to take sides against the family, or Walter White claiming that everything he did he did for his family, or Vin Diesel teasing us that he don't got friends, he got family. You know, side note of this tragedy is uh, perhaps the, the, the greatest fallout of coronavirus is that the world will have to wait another year 
before Fast and Furious 9 comes out. Either way, these particular examples that I picked coincidentally highlight that for many of us, family is thicker than abiding by the law. It's ride or die when it comes to family. This is a thread within Jesus's teaching that often goes overlooked in directly uh, challenging this way of thinking. Many of these teachings are cataloged in the Gospel of Luke, which was written by one of Paul's traveling companions. Uh, these are the kinds of things Luke has Jesus saying. Uh, at one point in the Gospel of Luke, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. A little earlier in the narrative, Jesus says, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It sounds like Jesus is setting up the most detailed basketball pickup game and no matter who wins, family loses. Earlier than that, Jesus dialogues with a man saying, follow me. But the man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my own father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. At another time, a woman shares a blessing. Quoted, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In another encounter, this is how it goes. Now, Jesus's mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. You could imagine the man replying, yeah, but also your mother and brothers are waiting outside for you. Now, what is bothering Jesus so much? Sometimes people are just paying his mom a compliment for raising a nice boy, and he Jesus jukes them. Is he just trying to tear people down? Really, what's happening is that Jesus is taking every opportunity he can to radically challenge the primary allegiances that we have. He's confronting the kingdoms of this world that are all about self-preservation and propagating your own kind, about looking out for you and your own. And he's ushering in a kingdom where family is wider and deeper and more complex than we could have possibly imagined. He asks you over and over in these situations to rethink the answer to the question, who will you look out for at all costs? Luke capstones this thread by sharing, truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. As a church, we have to be the family, the house, the temple, the sacred space, where those who come from broken families or non-traditional families, families that the system simply doesn't look out for, we have to be the kind of place where those kinds of people find a home in this world, right now, in this age, and the age to come.
Now, back in Ephesians, Paul captures this perspective very well when he redefines family at the beginning of this letter. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, God destined us to be God's adopted children through Jesus Christ because of God's love. This is what God planned for the climax of all times, to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with things on earth. A little after that, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. When you're in the Jesus family, you're part of something way bigger than just looking out for your own kind. That's what temple building looks like. Now, to really construct a temple, to make a family whole, it's not enough to have an open door policy. That is to say, this is a sacred space. It's open to anyone. My family is open to anyone. All are welcome. Because really, both sides have to be present and actively involved and including, included in building that space um, for this to really be successful. And that's the second thing we can learn from Paul's approach here in this text, is that temple building takes two. There's an oft-repeated quote from a journalist about half a century ago that goes, the most segregated place in America is 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. And that's why Spark meets at 445, to avoid segregation. Uh, but for many of us, that experience from that quote rings true. Uh, but for many of us, that experience is not unique to churches at all. For those who work in tech in Silicon Valley, for example, it's not like our workplaces are necessarily more racially inclusive than our churches. This is a problem that confronts churches, businesses, organizations, institutions of all kinds. And many of these organizations can say that they're open to all groups of all backgrounds, but when you look around and see who's present, who's included, who's actively involved in shaping life in that organization, you know that they don't mean it and you get the vibe that your gifts and contributions are not truly welcome. It often happens even in churches that are racially diverse. For example, if there's a mix of uh, whites and Asians or whites and blacks, that perhaps the leadership is white or the default of the church culture is white. And it signals that there's still more work to be done to achieve racial reconciliation in that context. And it's gonna take everyone to do it. Here's how Paul emphasizes it in Ephesians 2. We both have access to the Father through Christ by the one Spirit. So now you are no longer strangers and aliens. Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you belong to God's household. When we see racial hierarchies uh, in life, um, we have to ask ourselves, how did this come to be this way? What hostilities need tearing down? Who needs to be included in building things back up? And I understand that this dream of racial harmony in many ways is becoming harder and harder to accomplish. Um, a study came out a few years ago that analyzed people's social networks and found that uh, found some truth to the stereotype that a lot of white people only have one black friend. The study found that in a 100 friend scenario, many white people have only one black friend, one Hispanic friend, one Asian friend, so on. So we can have situations where someone who is white is not confronted with their whiteness on any regular basis simply because of the way their networks are shaped. 
But of course, this goes beyond race as well. Over the last few years, uh, people have become more stratified in the their social networks, like by level of education, where it's becoming rarer and rarer for um, if you have a college degree to have a close friend who doesn't and vice versa. This educational divide has been correlated with political polarization and differences in ideologies and worldviews. We are becoming more different from other groups and have fewer shared spaces and experiences around which we can come together and engage with each other. You could see why it's so hard for people from different backgrounds to share sacred spaces with one another, but we don't share many spaces, period. And if we're only going to have empathy for the people on the margins, if the only time that we're going to have empathy for the people on the margins is when we actually encounter them in real life, then we're just not going to make it. You've heard or experienced countless circumstances where people who never considered the perspective of people in LGBTQ communities, um, they, they never considered those perspectives until somebody in their family came out. Uh, and then they were able to deconstruct their perspective and come to a more critical, thoughtful, nuanced one. And uh, of course, that's great. The challenge is that if that's the only way you're going to become empathetic to people on the margin. That is that when the call is coming from within your own house, you will die before you have a chance to practice reconciliation with the most marginalized people. Only about 5% of Americans belong to the LGBTQ community. Only about 1% of Americans are Muslims. If you're only going to start dismantling Islamophobia when you actually meet a Muslim, I don't know if this is going to work. We have to take the Jesus approach where we actively seek out people on the margins and bring them into our sacred spaces to represent them and include them and involve them in shaping that sacred space. Now, I love Spark's work in racial reconciliation. For a long time, there was no straight white male uh, represented in Spark's pastoral team. So I used to joke that the man uh, is not represented in Spark's pastoral leadership. That of course changed when Pastor Tom joined the staff, uh, our token uh, straight white male, if you will. And uh, I love the attitude that many Sparkers have of being protective of the vibe or community or space that we've built. And we also have to acknowledge that there are still many voices from the margins that aren't represented in Spark, that we have that haven't been involved in building our sacred space. Uh, Pastor Kevin always says that Spark takes the shape of its members. So how can we appreciate and value what we've already built without building walls of hostility to keep those who aren't like us out? While all of this may seem daunting, especially in the middle of a pandemic where people are incentivized more than ever to only look out for themselves, uh, Paul offers a third take that I think is a very healthy one. And that is that temple building takes time. Uh, in this passage here, Paul uses the present tense to describe how God is building. It's a prog, it's a work in progress that God is uh, building in Jesus Christ through the Spirit um, for all of us to come together. There's a, a the supernatural force that is the Holy Spirit is the one who's working through us to get stuff done. 
And this pandemic, ironically, presents us with unique opportunities to find sacred spaces and experiences with those who are nothing like us. We live in an increasingly globalized world. Uh, it feels smaller than ever, where a virus can quickly tear through an entire population, leaving no continent behind. And there are billions of people who are sheltered in place. There is a shared human plight on an unparalleled scale where we are all forced to think about the same things together as a community. 50 years from now, people all over the world of all different races and backgrounds will have to explain to their grandchildren why they still have a stockpile of toilet paper in their garage. When you think about how we're going to get out of this mess, you think of things like herd immunity and vaccine trials and antibodies from recovered patients, particularly uh, being helpful through plasma therapy to help other people recover. You realize just how much we are all connected and in this together. We say like, you know, blood is thicker than water. In this case, literally, people who are nothing like each other will, could have blood transferred to each other in order to fight forces like viruses that tear us apart. You know, the only way out of this is together, all of us. And who better than followers of Jesus, the walking, talking, healing temple of God, to engage in the work of reconciliation. You know, it's important not to miss out on a Jesus who is pushing us to be more inclusive than we could have possibly imagined. Who is your family? Who do you hold sacred space with? What walls are you tearing down? Who are you pushing to include that the rest of us are overlooking? What is the Spirit doing through you? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for everything you've done in Jesus, in destroying our hostility and being patient and persevering and working through us even when we fight against you. Uh, open our eyes to see our neighbors differently, to see family differently, to show us what it really means to be as loving and merciful and gracious as you are. We're blessed uh, by your work of reconciliation within us, and we're excited for the world that you're building that reflects all of the beauty of all of the different kinds of people and families that we are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And at this time, we're going to switch over to communion, which is one of those ways that the church historically uh, has expressed the special union that comes from belonging in Jesus Christ, one that um, gives life to the differences that we can celebrate and also gives a, a, a foundational basis for all of us to love each other. As the tradition in scripture relays it, uh, for in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, our Lord took the bread and blessed and broke it, giving it to the, his disciples and saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Thanks so much for joining us, Spark. <laughs>